Welcome to Waterbrook Church located in Victoria, Minnesota. This Sunday's message is entitled The Glory of Emmanuel. In Matthew 1, 18-25, Matthew describes the staggering event where the God of the universe took on our humanity. We invite you to pray for a fresh sense of wonder and amazement this week that God planned and embraced this divine incarnation for our forgiveness and salvation. God really is with us. Let's worship together. Well, it's good to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't it great to know you're not alone? To celebrate and to consider today that God has, uh, at the greatest expense, become our everlasting Savior. And I hope you're sensing that today. Um, We are going to take communion at the end of the service, and I tell you that while we're studying the Word, so that you would let the Word minister to your heart in light of communion as you're thinking about the cross. Let the Scriptures just make you uh, respond to the Holy Spirit. If there's ways that you need to hear God or God speak to you through the Word today as you prepare to take communion, this is a time just to listen and think and ponder what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Let me also share with you that on Christmas Eve, which is a Sunday this year, uh, we will just be having our Sunday morning services. Um, We have in the past been able to book the the Curling Center down in Chaska, and we tried to find a few places where we could all be together in one service, and nobody's open on uh, Christmas Eve because it's a Sunday. They don't have staff and so on, so we decided, well, God wants us to be together here. We'll have two services. But let me also say this. There are a lot of good churches around, and if you and your family want to worship somewhere on Christmas Eve, we encourage you to do that as well. Oakwood in Waconia, uh, Westbrook here in Victoria, Chaska, Grace Chaska. There's just going to be some services at times that you and your family might want to go to that. I just want to encourage you to do that. We have good brothers and sisters in Christ if you feel the Lord calling you to do that. But let's just encourage each other and rejoice in the gift of God's Son, our Savior. We are going into a season where the word Emmanuel needs to speak loudly to us. Uh, Gabe said at the beginning of uh, the service when he was welcoming us that there are acute moments in our lives when we feel alone. Sometimes, Christmas, you can be actually physically alone, and some of us uh, know what that. This is one of those Christmases where we will not be with our kids and our family. Usually we rotate somebody around, but this year we won't be with them. And um, we, uh, uh, yesterday, I, Marianne is uh, in Southern California. So, honey, if you're watching, love you. Um, but she's visiting friends in Southern California this weekend. And uh, I went out, I thought yesterday, I'll go Christmas shopping for her uh, while she's gone. And I went to the mall, and, you know, I had this lonely feeling walking around. I, I'd rather Christmas shop with her, <laughs> uh, partly because I have terrible taste. <laughs> I'm thinking, you have no idea what you're doing, you know. And so there are these physical uh, realities, relational aloneness. But um, beyond that, there's this um, existential aloneness we can feel. Sometimes you can be in the middle of people you know. You can be in places where um, there are a lot of people that are there and familiar to you. You can be in worship and feel acutely alone. Elizabeth Bernstein from the Wall Street Journal wrote an article last year at Christmas saying, feeling alone at Christmas, Uh, you're not alone. And what she meant is you're not alone feeling alone. 
that it's a common experience. And she described it this way. Everybody else out, everybody else out there is gathering, is celebrating, is getting all along, and they're all happy families. And it can underscore what you don't have because you're imagining in your mind that everyone else out there has it. And uh, so you can be feeling inside existentially in the middle of all that's going on, all that seems celebratory, that you just feel deeply disconnected and alone. But the story of Emmanuel describes to us not simply an existential aloneness. The story uh, of Emmanuel tells us of what I want to call a cosmic aloneness. That when you read the story of the Bible, what we discover is that Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, broke our relationship with God in such a way that in the core of our being, we've been disconnected from the one for whom we were made. And the, the ability to rectify cosmic aloneness is impossible for us. Uh, the reality is that sin has so bent us that we wouldn't actually fix it if we could could in that sense God had to come to us Emmanuel had to break into our world and be made known to us and you know there may be some of us this morning who are feeling that deep sense of cosmic aloneness that God is out of reach that you're disconnected from him that he seems so far away and I want to encourage you, even in that, the Bible addresses it. There are psalms in the Old Testament that are written so that when you read them and experience them, you go, oh, I'm not the only one. Psalm 88 is one of those psalms that actually doesn't end with um, a remedy. It ends with brokenness and aloneness and a sense that God has forgotten us. I want to read, just to cheer you up at Christmas, I want to read the end of Psalm 88 for you and just listen to the psalm, the end part. The psalmist writes, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They have surrounded me like a flood all day long. They close me in. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Sounds very Job-like, right? But aren't you glad that's there in the Bible? Because there are moments in your life where you can't rectify that cosmic di distance between you and God. It's like God has turned his face away from you and it's not shone upon you. Here's the good news. That even when we feel that, we have Emmanuel. The God who knows us and who has come and has come to us in that and we are not without hope. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if you are feeling that breach between you and God, hear this message today. That this God comes to you in the middle of that. You are not. We are not alone. That's how this reads. Now Matthew in his gospel is different than Luke in his gospel. Luke in his gospel gives us a whole lot more detail. Uh, we have Mary singing. We have 
uh, people anticipating. Wait, we have the angels and the shepherds and all of this. We got 18 to 25, and then we're two years later. But there's something beautiful about succinctness. I'm not really good at it as a preacher. I apologize now. But there's good uh, in the succinctness because it's as if Matthew goes right to the heart of the message and tells us from Joseph's perspective the message of Christmas. And this is the message of Christmas, that your deep sense of alienation and aloneness doesn't have to exist any longer because God has chosen to come to us. And remember, for Israel, 400 years of silence, essentially, four centuries of silence. To use modern language, it's as if God has ghosted Israel. They're just going, where are you? And suddenly now he shows up in a absolutely surprising way. They had read the scriptures, they had anticipated it, but a baby born in Bethlehem? How can this be? So here's where we start. One little verse. I want you to look at verse 18. This is, this is how it begins. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. There's, there is Matthew's summary statement, and that is staggering. The first thing you and I are meant to see is this staggering reality. What, what Matthew is telling us in this passage is that omnipotent deity has taken on frail humanity. The God of the universe has chosen to show up in our world as a child who is fragile, who breathes. <laughs> Yesterday I was FaceTiming with uh, my daughter Lauren in Honduras, and little Oe, uh, or Roe, I got a Roe and an Oe, this is a Roe, little Roe is like motoring around now, and their whole house is concrete and hard tile, and they have stairs that go like straight up to heaven. And Rowie is now climbing the stairs. And as a Fafa, watching on the phone, I want to say, can you, like, rescue him? <laughs> because I, you know, and again, he's, he's pretty coordinated. And he's going up and down. But there's a sense with a little child, their fragility. Remember when that baby first came home? Or the first time you had a child and you bring him home? You're just, like, going, like, delicate, porcelain. The third one, you're throwing around say, you take them. But the first one, you're just thinking, this child is fragile. This is what we see in this text. And you and I, as we look at this, need to hear the miracle of this because th this is what Matthew's doing. Matthew says, this is the second time he does it, he uses for the word birth the word genesis. So the second time now, he says, this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying, I believe, that's supposed to resonate with us as we listen to this, is that this is the new creation. This is God bringing his son into the world to, to, to make new what was broken in the old story. This is the seed of the woman who has come to crush the head of the serpent. This is great news. This is what you've been waiting for all the way through the ages. And they've been... A long narrative of God putting up with them, God persisting, God sending prophets, God sending them to, in exile, God continually calling them to repentance, and then dead silence. 
and now the genesis of Jesus Christ. Now if you look at what Matthew points out, he says this is what happened. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And what Matthew is doing here, at the very least, is he's beginning to say, this is not accidental. This Messiah you've been waiting for, this is God's orchestrated sovereign plan. This is Joseph. It's not happenstance that Joseph is Jesus' father. Joseph, as we saw in the previous genealogy, is of the line of David. Later, when the angel speaks to Joseph, he will call him Joseph, son of David. Matthew wants us to hear son of David because this is the Messiah coming from the line of David who's come to be born. He's born to Mary. Later in this passage, we'll hear the angel, we'll hear Matthew's commentary that this was to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 that the virgin will be with child and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Immediately we're, we're meant to see in this passage that the sovereign purpose of God who is Lord over time and Lord over Israel and Lord over the nations is now enacting in this moment his long uh, orchestrated plan not accidental but the child that this woman is carrying is born of who the holy spirit well there is a striking note this is a staggering thought this is what matthew is going to get at and get through to us all the way through this this story. This is not any human being just born by casual uh, human relationship. This is the Son of God, born of God, God himself in human flesh. Now there are some people who have argued, you know what Matthew's doing here? Matthew, in starting out his story of the life of Jesus, is trying to counter the criticism that they know that Jesus was born out of wedlock. And I believe what commentators rightly argue in this letter is that Matthew is not simply trying to give an easy, cheap, kind of pagan mythology where the gods come down and, and have a child with a human and create a human. He's telling what Matthew believed with all his heart and was willing to die for. But the apostles in the Gospels, believed with all the heart, the story that was recounted by all of the apostles, that the stunning and staggering reality is that this is not a, 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 a human being. This is not a, a, a casual event. This is inconceivably, mind-blowingly true. The God of the universe has taken on our humanity. C.S. Lewis describes this as the grand miracle. In his book on miracles, he said, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. This is the big one. This is where the God of silence shows up to change the direction, to remake all things, to make things new. He says, every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relationship to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. 
You understand what he means there? If God didn't take human flesh, there would be no other miracles. The dead would not rise. The blind could not see. The lame would not walk. This reality, this miracle, this God entering humanity is what made it possible for God to bless and change and transform miraculously the things that happen in people's lives. Without the incarnation, there is no hope. There is no help. There is no life. And we see all the way through the scriptures that this is what staggered the disciples. The staggering reality is God, the omnipotent, sovereign creator of the universe. The Lord over all is born in a frail human child. He came in the weakness of human flesh. John says that. The Apostle John begins his gospel with John chapter 1 with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John, we have seen the Son of God in flesh, God's very Son, we've touched him and heard from him, the one who made and created all things. The Apostle Paul will write this repeatedly in different places, but in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, it said, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The argument of Paul in in Galatians is, is that by Jesus becoming man, the son of God being in flesh, the reality is you and I get to become sons of God. He doesn't become the Son of God. If he doesn't become God the Son in human flesh, you and I never get to be adopted into the family of God. If you're feeling alone, the incarnation is the announcement that you can come very close to God into his family through his Son. Over and over again, the New Testament writers will reiterate the glory. This is staggering. This is stunning. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, Jesus Christ condescends to assume my flesh and blood, my body and soul. He doesn't become an angel. He doesn't rescue the angels who have fallen. He doesn't become an angel or another magnificent creature. He becomes man. This is a token of God's mercy to wretched human beings. Hear that line? This is a token of God's mercy to wretched human beings. The human heart cannot grasp or understand it, let alone express it. How is it that God takes on human flesh? We can't comprehend all of the realities, theologians down through the ages, but here's the good news. He could have come some other way, but he didn't. That's what we just sang, right? The song that we just sang together and celebrated um, from Phil Wickham is, you chose meekness over majesty, rapture power in humanity. 
You could have come into Rome with a mighty army, with fire, but you came to Bethlehem as a child in frailty. The Apostle Paul said this claim that Jesus was deity in human flesh was vindicated at Jesus' resurrection. Romans chapter 1, verse 3, uh, chapter 1, 1 to 3, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Emmanuel, who was declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul writes to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, 15 to 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created for him, by, through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This baby is that God. Angels were made by him. Kingdoms are held together by him. That one is in Bethlehem in a manger. Isn't that amazing God chose that? Theologians have sat and argued and, and defended that you cannot, to everything hinges on the doctrine of the incarnation. The Ath Athanasian Creed tried to pull this mystery together with clarity without being able to you know, master it all, but listen to what the Athanasian Creed says. Now, this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, before, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking, God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too one Christ is both God and human. Got it mastered? Got it wrapped up? Do you understand what's going on here? It's staggering. The God of the universe has taken on human frailty, for our sake and we ought to worship we ought to fall down we got to hear the angels who sing in Bethlehem over Bethlehem after they see what God has done glory to God in the highest you and I need to bow down and marvel that God would do to this you know you just you and I just need to stop and say God is up to something here he didn't choose another way he chose this way to come he wants us to know we're not alone. He's not abandoning us. He's not distancing himself. I've seen people who have had cancer and were going through chemotherapy lose their hair. And if you've ever been through that, you know there's a day coming where you go, it's just better to cut it off. And on that day, I've seen their family or friends come around them. And on the day they cut their hair, they cut theirs. 
All of a sudden, instead of one bald head, there's seven. What are, what are you doing when you shave your head with someone that's in that predicament? You're saying, you are not alone. Sister, you are not alone. What is God doing when he's taking our humanity? He's telling us, I've been planning to come and get you long before you ever knew me. You are not alone. The second thing that we need to see in this passage is why he's coming. Why did he take on our humanity? We need to see the radical initiative and intervention of God. He has come in the flesh to save us completely from our sins. Look at verse 19. It says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And if that sounds harsh to you, the the way the scripture presents this is Joseph isn't being harsh. Joseph is thinking in his head, this, he's a right, it says he's a righteous man. He's being commended. He's trying to remove shame from her. And he's doing what we do. We're trying to mitigate the misery that's been brought about by sin. Because he can't see what's really going on here coming in and saying, I don't want to shame you. He's just feeling at his core broken. We're not given a whole lot of details because that's not the focal point, but we're given enough information that this has turned Joseph's world upside down. How do I walk out of this? How do I respond to this? And we're told here that what happens is the angel says to Joseph, The same thing. There's not a lot of similarities between Joseph and Mary's story, but the angel says the same thing to Joseph that he says to Mary. What are the words? Fear not. Fear not. And then what the angel explains to him is he says this, Fear not, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people. He is in humanity because his humanity is absolutely necessary to save us from our sins. If he doesn't come up, become human, he cannot die in our place. And he didn't come just to adjust our lives and make it better. He came to save us from the cancer that's killing us. He came to deal with the sin that is in our lives. Scriptures tell us repeatedly that Jesus came as an atonement for sin. John Piper, in reflecting on this exact verse, he says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, not simply the consequences of sin and wrath, but the poison of sin and the distorting, contaminating, idolatrous ugliness of sin that ruins everything in life and makes me love stuff more than I love God. I need to be cleansed of all that, not just freed from its consequences. I need the disease to be taken away, not just a rescue from the consequences of death and wrath. Do you understand what Piper's saying there? He's coming to get the cancer. Those of us who have battled cancer, and they go after cancer, we want them to get it all. Jesus has taken on our humanity because he's going after all our sin. He's taking humanity because he intends to be on the job after the cross. He's going to the cross and after the cross because his purpose is to present us faultless in God's presence one day. 
Marcus Johnson says, there's no doubt about the crucifixion, no doubt that the crucifixion and death of Christ would have been powerless had he not been truly and fully human. But there is indeed more we can and should say about the atoning implications of the incarnation. For when God became incarnate, he began a comprehensively astounding work of reconciliation that healed and saved every last aspect of our fallen humanity from cradle to grave. Put it simply, you've probably heard this before, Christ didn't come simply to pay the penalty for, his, for your sin. He came to break the power of your sin. And he ultimately wants to break the, uh, pay the penalty for your sin and break the power of sin because one day he wants to get rid of the presence of sin altogether in your life. That's why he came, to deal radically with us. Again, Marcus Johnson says, this is a corrective for us because you and I are not sitting here saying, oh, we want to get better. Unfortunately, you and I are pretty happy in our sin, left to ourselves. The old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But here's what Johnson says. He says, the incarnation is a monumental rebuke of our misguided aspirations, for the incarnation accomplishes the severe mercy of rendering absurd any notion that rapprochement between uh, any notion that rapprochement between God and humanity is on our part. We do not seek and find a reclusive God. He pursues and overtakes a rebellious people. We did not perforate his unapproachable light. He penetrates our unsearchable darkness. My dear friends, Jesus decided to do what was necessary. The eternal God, Father and Son, in Trinitarian consultation, agreed together that the Son would come and kill sin once and for all. And deliver. Aren't you glad for that? That's why he was pierced for our sins. That's why he died, to break the power of sin. That's why he came, that one day we would have a new creation where all things are new and sin exists no more. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Don't you want that? You're not alone. You're not alone when you're struggling. You're not alone when you're battling sin because you have someone who's battled on your behalf and will battle till the battle is done. That's the good news. And that leads us to the third implication, Emmanuel, which I just want to call the great hope. God is what? With us. Christ is with us, not just when he showed up in Bethlehem, but Christ took on our humanity for eternity. He is forever with us. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father in glory. What is Jesus doing right now? He's interceding for us. My dear friends, Emmanuel of Bethlehem Day is Emmanuel today and forevermore. Friend, if you're struggling in the battle with sin and thinking, how would I ever come? Lean not on your own strength. Look to Jesus. Matthew begins by saying he is called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew ends with these words. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go into all nations making disciples, teaching them what I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it doesn't end there. What's the final words of Matthew? And lo, I am with you, Emmanuel. Always. That is great 
and glorious news. Hebrews 2 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject of lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps. You ever stopped and and marvel that the Son of God did not become an angel and redeem fallen angels? No, it's a marvel that he didn't do that to glorious angels. What a marvel it is. He did it to wretched, frail human rebels. But this is what it says. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he, was suff- he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When Jesus prays and intercedes for you and you think, man, I struggle, I'm weak, I'm depressed, I'm mourning, I've got all these battles. My dear friends, he knows. He understands. He gets it. He gets it better than you do. Why? Because you quit halfway through and gave in to sin. He never gave in to the temptation. He knows the full measure of it. And he resisted it so he could help you. That's Emmanuel. That's our great high priest. Listen to Gavin, or Dane Ortland. Dane says, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend that knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, He's with us, Emmanuel. Solidarity. Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we seek further into pain, we seek further into felt isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. My dear friends, we are never alone because he was forsaken. We will never be abandoned by him because God turned his face against his son. He bore that so that he might ever live to intercede for us when we're struggling and we're tired and we're alone and we don't feel like Christmas. And he comes along and says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I mean, if he went to the cross, if he died for our sins, don't you think he'll follow through all the way? We argue from the greater to the lesser. The greatest thing that ever was required, that he would die in our place, the greatest news ever is that we are forgiven and he is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray and prepare our hearts to take communion and celebrate this great reality that God is with us. Let's pray together. Now, O God, as we prepare our hearts and confess our sin and acknowledge our weakness and contemplate what Jesus has done, thank you, Jesus, that you are the Alpha and Omega, (laughs) beginning and the end. You have taken our our humanity and you've not let it go, but you are the God-man seated as the great high priest interceding for us. So in our weakness and in our struggle, we just say, help us, Jesus. Forgive us, Jesus. 
Show us, Jesus. Never let us go. And I pray, dear God, if there's anybody here today that has never trusted in Jesus, that at this moment they would just pray, Jesus, be my Savior and never let me go. Come in power, we ask. Jesus, you are worthy of worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.